We're in the second week of our Advent series in which we are looking at uh, the idea of waiting for the light, waiting for the light. Advent is really the celebration of three comings, the coming of God into our midst in the person of Jesus Christ. He came first, the first time in the past, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, and came into humanity as a little infant baby boy. Uh, The second time, Christ comes into our presence all the time through the way we treat each other, through communion, through prayer. He comes to the God in our midst in the present. And then lastly, Advent is really a waiting, a waiting for God to come in the future when all things will be made new and all things will be made right. The coming of God into our midst. But there is a dark side to Advent. There's a difficult side to Advent because Advent inherently means to wait, to wait for the coming of God, the God who has already come and who is yet to come, already but not yet. And so during Advent time, and it's one of the things I love so much about Christianity in general, that Advent time reminds us how to order our life in terms of a world that actually exists. Does this make sense? To order our life in terms of a world that actually exists, a world that is made up of so much good and a world that is made up of so much darkness. And uh, those of us who are Christians and those of us who are not Christians are all trying to make sense of the world that is. Does this make sense? The world that is. Where uh, we see the Salvation Army people ringing their bell and we see the joy of people giving and we see the people who, uh, who hurt and destroy making sense of a world that is. One of the things that I appreciate so much about Christianity is that Christianity gives us a a worldview or a framework that helps us understand our world, a world full of goodness and a world full of darkness. And if you and I are honest, each and every one of us possesses those capacities right within our own souls, don't we? Light and darkness. Light and darkness. And Advent season reminds us that God has come that God is here, and that God is coming. But in this Advent season, which is characterized by waiting, we are reminded from the scriptures that waiting is very, very difficult, right? We saw last week that what we are waiting for is the restoration of all things, for the world to operate as it should, and that in the meantime, while we wait, and not everyone heard this last week because the weather was really bad, the way we do it is through suffering. We suffer which is to say not just that we go through pain, distress, or hardship, but is to say that we engage with a broken world to bring the light of Christ into it because the light of Christ shines brighter than the darkness, right? Um, The light has come and the darkness cannot overcome it. John 1, 5. Last week we saw uh, that... We are waiting for the restoration of all things, and we wait through suffering, through engaging with a broken world. But this week, we continue in the, uh, in the theme of difficulty and suffering, and we try to give ourselves a little bit more context. And this morning, we basically have two overarching questions that we are going to answer. First, why is waiting so difficult, right? Why is waiting so difficult? This question may seem obvious, but the question is important. Uh, Why is waiting so difficult? We all know it is, but why is it so difficult from a Christian perspective? And second, we need to see some reminders, some things that we need to remember as we wait that give us the kind of foothold to be able to endure during difficulty. So first, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. 
the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to be looking at the entire book. I'm not going to read the entire book, but I will be referring to it throughout. There'll be, uh, there'll be references up in, on the screen that you can look at as I'm speaking. And so this is the perfect opportunity if you want to zone out. You can just look at your phones, and I'll think you're reading the scriptures. You know what I mean? But anyway, I don't suggest you do that, but if you want to, you can get away with it easier than other days. Uh, Habakkuk, and we're going to look at the whole thing. And we really got a a lot of things to see this morning, but you'll see I will move quickly. But the two overarching questions we are looking at this morning is why is waiting so difficult? And then uh, some reminders about how we wait. What do we need to remember while we wait? First, why is waiting so difficult? The first reason that waiting is so difficult we see from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And the reason it's so difficult to wait is because when we are waiting, we can often not see how God is working. We often cannot see how God is working. The book of Habakkuk is uh, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. He prophesied about five years, four years before the fall of Judah, the nation that he had been called to prophesy before they were going to be overrun by the Babylonians. Most scholars believe that this prophecy dates to around 609 B.C. and the fall of Judah is 605. Habakkuk is looking at his nation, the nation of Judah, and he is grieving in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that the nation is so evil and wicked. And Habakkuk cries out, as we often have cried out in the past for different reasons, but it's the same cry. Verse 2, how long must I call to you for help, O Lord? How long must I call and you not listen, right? Now, is it theologically true that God is not listening? Of course not. But is it true personally, relationally, that Habakkuk feels as though God is not listening? You bet it is, right? How long must I call and you not listen? How how long must I cry out violence and you not save? How long must I look at injustice and you not do something about it? Why do you tolerate it? When we are going through difficulty, it is often difficult to see God at work. But did you know that God is at work even if you cannot see it, right? God is at work even if you cannot see it. I have observed often from a relational standpoint that we tend to think if we cannot see God working, then we believe in our minds that he is not. And it is not true, for God is always at work even if you cannot emotionally process what is going on in your life. One thing I tell myself often, if you've heard me often, you know I say this to myself all the time. What I feel is real, but it just isn't always true, right? What I feel may be real, but it is not always true, right? It's not that truth is relative. There is absolute truth, but your truth and my truth, sometimes in our fallenness, we distort what the truth is, right? And sometimes we mix our feelings with truth, And one of those ways that we mix our feelings with truth is we believe that God is not at work, and he always is. But it is difficult to wait, because in the midst of waiting, we cannot see how God is working. And when we cannot see how God is working, we tend to believe he is not. And he is. The second reason that it's hard to believe and wait that makes waiting so difficult is that while we wait, we often don't like the current circumstances of our life. In other words, we often do not like how God is working when we can see some of the things that he is at work doing in our life. I can give you the textual example 
And then you could fill in the gaps with your relational examples, your own experiential examples. Habakkuk in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, cries out to God, God, why are you not doing something about Judah, who is becoming so violent, so unjust? How could you do this? And God's answer to Habakkuk in chapter, five, or chapter 1, verse 5 through 17 is, I am doing something. I am bringing the Babylonians to judge you. I am doing something. I am sending an evil foreign superpower, and they will exile you and take your nation over and judge you for your sin. And Habakkuk, understandably, has emotional difficulty with this answer, right? Um, understandably so. We often don't like how God is working, and if you believe that you are alone in that, uh, I'll just say this the nice way. You're an idiot, you know? <laughs> I'm going to be so heavy, so I have to just say goofy things sometimes, you know? If you think you're alone in that, it's not true. We often see what's going on in our life, and we wish it was different, right? I can see how this illness has put me in a position to be able to have these relationships with these people, but you know what I'd really like? Not to have the illness, right? I can see how this broken relationship has the pain of it is transforming in my heart through ways I never wanted and has opened up doors I never would have gone through. But man, what I want is to have a healthy relationship with my parents or my child, right? We looked at Romans eight twenty eight last week. And God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his promise. And remember, God does not cause broken relationship and illness, but in this broken world where there is broken relationship and illness, he takes all things and works them for good to his goodwill and promise. And we may not like it at times, and we may wish God would have worked some way else. And you know what the truth is? As pastor, I wish God would have worked some way else. We have all learned lessons that have transformed us and made us look more like Christ that we wish we could have learned in a very, very different way, right? And when God's kingdom comes to earth, we will no longer learn these lessons this way, but here and now in the, in the tension between the two comings, we often don't like the way God is working in our lives. And I guarantee you that the Babylonians crushing the, Judah, the nation of Judah was not God's perfect and pleasing and good will that he would have had if there was no brokenness in this world. But where there is brokenness, he takes all things and uses them for the goodwill of his pleasure. And when God's kingdom comes, it will no longer be this way. But in the meantime, we see things and we often don't like the way it works. And perhaps you, like Habakkuk, have tried to have divine direct dialogue with God, right? And unfortunately for many of us, we cry out to God and we do not hear anything by terms of audible uh, reply, yeah? If you have heard audibly, sometimes they put you in special homes, yes? But we have so many examples in the scriptures where there is divine, direct dialogue. We have Genesis with Abraham. Please spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are so, so, so evil. But uh, my nephew lives there. Do not wipe them out. Will you spare them for 50? I will spare them for 50 righteous. Will you do it for 40? Will you do it for 30? Will you do it for 10? 20? Will you do it for 10? I'll do it for 10. And still, there's not... Ten righteous people, and God wipes them out. Divine, direct dialogue, pleading with God, right? Job, after his difficulties, 
has a dialogue with God, a dialogue with his friends, and he tells God, I wish I was dead, I did nothing wrong. And God says, where were you when I created this world? And Job responds in faith, right? But what is this in the context of? Of judgment. Of judgment. And we have perhaps the most bizarre of the examples, Jonah, who is given a promise of judgment, wants it to come and is afraid if he goes that it will not come. And when he finally goes, not through his own will, but through the will of a fish that forces him, yeah, he then sits and pouts in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah and says, that's why I didn't want to go, because I knew you were good, kind, and gracious, compassionate God. Do you hear the words I'm saying? And God says, I'm a God who saves, right? We often don't get divine direct dialogue, but do you notice what all these divine direct dialogues are about? They're about judgment and not understanding why that judgment has to be. And so will it be with us because it is difficult to wait because we often don't like the way God is working in third. Have you noticed that when we're waiting, we often don't get the answers as quickly as we would like? Have you noticed this? We often don't get answers as quickly as we would like. Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 1, what does he do? He sits down at his ramparts to watch. Like a soldier, you know, have you ever seen those movies and the soldiers have to uh, take the night watch and they're sitting there and they fall asleep because it's long on the night watch and for the most part nothing ever happens, but that one time something does, you know? And what does Habakkuk say in chapter 2, verse 1? I will take, I will stand at my watch. That means attentiveness, right? I'm not going to sit. I'm not going to play dice. I'm going to stand at my watch. I'm going to station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me, that is God, and what answer he will put to my complaint. And that's bold. But the commentators say we don't really know how long it took between chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 2. And so with us, it doesn't, we don't often know. How long must we wait before we get the answers? We often don't get the answers as quickly as we would like. And yet we must faithfully wait on God when we don't understand what he is doing. We must faithfully wait on God when we don't understand what he is doing. Faithfulness. And I've noticed that when people don't understand things, they do stupid stuff, right? The child who waits for their parent to come and pick them up at pickup and they're late, they often, their minds often go to stupid things and they believe stupid things of their parents. Faithfully wait when we don't understand what he is doing because, and this is just, if this is the only thing you remember from my sermon, this would be a good one to take away, because faithful suffering cannot destroy you, but faithless suffering will. Faithful suffering cannot and will not destroy you, but faithless suffering will. And the Bible is full, full, full of waiting. It is full of waiting. And it is full of examples of faithful men and women and far more of faithless ones. And what do you notice in the Bible all throughout? That faithless waiting destroys faithful suffering never does. I want to take you to a passage of scripture just briefly, just for the joy of it. Uh, It is the last section in the entire Old Testament. It's found in the book of Malachi. I believe it's page 780. 
And it is some of the last words that God speaks or reveals to his people before the long 400 years of silence that exists between the writing of this text and the writing and the coming of Jesus and then the writings of the Gospels. 400 years of silence between the writing of Malachi and the coming of the infant Jesus. And here is what Malachi the prophet promises to the hurting and broken people of Israel who are now back in the land of Israel, but the glory of former days is vastly diminished. And here's what the prophet Malachi says to encourage. Surely the day is coming and it will burn like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves and you will trample on the wicked and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet for on that day I will act says the Lord Almighty. And then, do you know what happens? 400 years of no prophecy. In that 400 intertestamental years, between the testaments, Israel uh, is under the foreign rule of uh, the Greeks. Then the Romans. There's a brief period of uh, freedom under the Maccabeans, but for the most part... They are enslaved and under foreign rule. And do you see what that text says? I am coming and the evil will pay. You will be vindicated. I have spoken. Oh, I have spoken. That reminds me of Mandalorian. Who's seen that? Baby Yoda? That, that is pretty cool, right? I have spoken. That's what God says. I have spoken. 400 years. The Romans, the Greek, the Greeks, the Romans, and then a baby. Can you not feel the weight? I would have preferred something other than a baby to come and save us. Yes? 400 years, and then a baby. <laughs> Waiting is difficult. Why? Because the answers we want don't come as quickly as we would like. This isn't even Israel's first 400-year period of waiting. They famously were in Egypt under enslaved for 400 years before Moses came and set them free, yeah? And here's another 400-year period. And then, I, I just got to do it for a bit. I won't, I won't go too historical you, on you, but here's what happens. Jesus lives for 33 years. He dies. He has three and a half years of miracles. The church is then born. They go out and suffer. They almost all die a martyr's death besides the apostle John, who is said to be boiled in oil and survived, which, and then exiled to the island of Patmos, which isn't like, uh, you know, one of those all-inclusive resorts in Cancun. And then in year 70 AD, the temple is wiped out, and there's not a brick on top of each other and I am coming, and now we're in a period of 2,000 years. And I bring you to this beautiful Christmas season to cheer you up, right? I will come. It is coming, but waiting is difficult because we cannot often see God at work. We often don't like how he's working. 
and we don't get the answers as quickly as we would like, and yet there God is in the person of Jesus, the once and future king, born of the Virgin Mary, ascended to the glory of the Father, and now for these 2,000 years we wait for his coming again so that his kingdom might come to earth and the will of God might be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we wait, and it's hard. I like the Advent season because I don't like to be told that things are awesome when they're hard, and they're hard. Um, I have enough uh, intellectual intelligence. I may not have as much as many of you, but I have enough to know uh, when things are not, I'm being sold a bill of goods that will not match reality, right? The Advent season reminds us that God has come, that God is coming now through you and through me, through our acts of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, and that one day God's kingdom will come eternally. And so what do we need to remember while we wait? What do we need to remember while waiting? The book of Habakkuk does not leave us off without answers here either. It gives us those answers. The first thing that we need to remember is that you will get an answer. You will get an answer, and perhaps you already have received one. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 2, And the Lord replied, You will get an answer. Wait for it, and it will come. Though it linger, it will come. The second thing we need to remember is that nobody is getting away with anything, right? Have you ever felt like that, that people get away with things? Remember that nobody is getting away with anything. That may be an encouragement or a discouragement, depending on where you're sitting this morning. It's a little bit of both for me at almost all times, yeah? Nobody gets away with anything. If you were to take the time, and I'm not going to take the time and read it to you now, chapter two, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, you would see that we have about 19 verses of judgment, with, or 17 verses of judgment with two hopeful verses sprinkled in there, Right? God elaborates how the wicked Babylonians will be crushed and how their violence will be judged, how their evil will be judged, how their injustice will be judged. In chapter 2, verse 14, though, look at what he says. I have to find my way back there. Uh, Look at what he says. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Nobody is getting away with anything. And that the Lord is in his holy temple, Let the earth be silent before him, right? The passage is filled with judgment, but in the midst of judgment, chapter 2, verse 14, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Chapter 2, verse 20, be silent before God and hear him, for he is in his holy temple, even now in the circumstances of this earth. What should we be doing right now? We should be silent before the Lord. We should submit to his authority. And yet, what does the majority of the world do? The psalmist tells us in chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 2, the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. And yet, what do the righteous do? Silence before the Lord. We need to remember that nobody is getting away with anything. Third, we need to remember to readjust our focus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. God goes on to share with Habakkuk, or actually Habakkuk prays, and Habakkuk 
chooses to readjust his focus. And you know what Habakkuk does poetically here? How the, the narrative works? He poetically recounts all the things God has done. He remembers in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, he remembers that God is the creator of heaven and earth. And in verses 5 through 15, he remembers that God is a warrior. And there's all kinds of Old Testament allusions in this text. There's allusions to the Exodus when God led his people out of slavery under Moses. There's allusions to the routing of the Midianites under uh, the judge Gideon in the Old Testament when he delivered the Israelites uh, from a foreign superpower, the power of the Midianites, with 300 men holding jar pots and trumpets, right? He recounts and remembers the day when Joshua was, was leading the people of Israel into the promised land and when the sun stood still. And there is just a slight allusion to one of my favorite Old Testament stories when uh, the evil general Sisera is slain by the woman J.L. who slams a tent, pike through, tent spike through her, through his head, after offering him milk and honey cakes and putting him down for a nap which was what every good man should do after having milk and honey cakes, right? The meek JL, as all women are meant to be, right? No, that's just a joke. Slams a tent spike through Sisera's head. I could have probably left that part out, couldn't I? I'll do that. No, I won't. Anyway. Sometimes we need to remember to readjust our focus. Why is this? Because what God has done in the past is a promise of what he will do in the future, even though he doesn't seem to do the same exact thing twice, right? For God has shown up in the past, and he will show up in the future, and he will show up in your present, even if you don't fully understand it. And fourth, we need to remind ourselves and remember that our pain is never wasted, that when we are experiencing pain, it is never, ever, ever wasted. Unless you think that Habakkuk is emotionally okay, read chapter 3, verse 16 with me. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sounds. Decay, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait for the day of calamity to come, right? This is like a man on a panic attack, yes? Though it is difficult, I will wait. It may be on wobbly legs and a heart, rhythm, a heart arrhythmia, but I will wait, says the prophet. Our pain is never wasted. And we shouldn't rush through our pain. We should feel our pain and lean into it. Because it is sometimes that our pain speaks to us in ways that nothing else can. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, said, says this, We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, and pain is unmasked. It is an unmasked, unmistakable evil that every man knows that something is wrong when he is experiencing it. You see? Do not rush through your pain. Allow it to move you towards God. For Habakkuk sits before God, and what does he say? The nations may plot, 
but I will wait in silence before you, for you are God and I am not. And remember, even with Habakkuk's crazy emotional, uh, emotional disarray in his life, Habakkuk teaches us one last important lesson, that even in pain, we are not powerless. In fact, we are never powerless. Do you notice what Habakkuk says in chapter 3, verse 17? You know, though my legs wobble, though my bones are decaying right in front of me, you know, he says, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, and there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in my God, for the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me like the feet of a deer. He enables to tread on the heights. Because the deer is not powerless. We need not allow our circumstances to dictate our mental state. For Jesus himself, remember what the author of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, do you see that language? For the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. This is not a powerless man. This is the omniscient, (laughs) omnipresent, omnipotent God in human form, in the person of Jesus, willfully putting himself on the cross, enduring the cross. And see what it says? Scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. For if Jesus himself did not allow his circumstances to dictate his mental state, if Habakkuk did not allow his circumstances to dictate his mental state, then we too need to be reminded and remember that rejoicing and finding our strength in God is a choice. A choice to turn our what-if-this-happens fears into even-if-it-happens trust. Yes? What if it happens? I don't know. What if it does? And even if it does, yet will I trust him. This morning we may praise God sometimes with wobbly legs and panic attacks. But we are not powerless. We await the once and future king who has come and is coming. And though things may not be the way we wish all the time, some of you it is, and I'm glad for that. But though for some of us it may not, and though even if we are going through incredible things, we know people who aren't, though things may be difficult at times, we are not powerless. We have a choice. This morning, as we turn our hearts and our attention and our minds to the communion table, as we remember what Jesus has done for us, I want to invite and remind all of you of the sacrifice of Christ, who, although Habakkuk describes his experience those uh, 2,600 years ago as he waits on the cusp or the precipice of the impending Babylonian invasion, uh, we remember that 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 time has come and Israel has endured. And now Jesus has come and he has given of his life. He has risen from the dead. And now we await his second coming. But as we await it, we await with hope, reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves that this Jesus, who we worship and follow, 
gave his life so that we might have life, who entered into our world so that we might enter into his. And so this morning, as we take time and we hear the music and we have a moment of silence, we remember and remind ourselves that Jesus has died for the sake of you and for me, that he loves us and that nothing, if God is for us, no one can stand against us, not in the end. And so this morning, as you come forward to receive of the elements that represent Christ's broken body and his shed blood, you hold the symbols that symbolize his sacrifice and allow those symbols to nourish and empower your life to remind you that God is for you. And if he is for you, then victory, and I mean ultimate victory, the restoration of all things, in an inevitable reality. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your love that you've shown us through Jesus. Through these next five minutes, as we hold and come forward and hold the elements that represent your son's broken body and shed blood, we pray that you would use this time and you would use as we consume these elements, uh, this, this moment to fortify our faith and our resolve to say, no matter what, yet I will trust you, yet I will praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this time, would you please come forward?
is mighty, has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered destiny, shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. This is Christ's body, which is broken for you. And this is Christ's blood, which is shed for you. Would you please stand with me this morning as we're dismissed? And so now, to God Almighty, whose plans for us do not end in death, 